A listener note, this podcast deals with adult topics and is not suitable for young listeners. The Washington Post found that nearly half of the women who were murdered during the past decade were killed by a current or former intimate partner. In an analysis of five cities, one-third of male killers were known to be a potential threat ahead of the attack. In today's episode, I'm sharing the devastating story of Brooke Morris, a young, beautiful single mom whose affair turned deadly. I'm Brooke Wilkerson. This is The Murder Podcast. And this is her story. Brooke was a beautiful blonde who was known for being loving and giving. She was a single mom to a three-year-old little boy and just 23 years old herself, with her whole life ahead of her. When Brooke got a job at an insurance office in Knoxville, she began working for a man named Sean Smoot. Sean was a successful insurance agent married to a woman named Michelle. After years of fertility problems, Sean and Michelle had decided to use a sperm donor and Michelle became pregnant. But that didn't stop Sean from starting up an affair with Brooke in late 2010 while his wife was still pregnant. Brooke again was just 23 years old, half of his age. She was beautiful, smart, and she was good at her job. But as they do, the affair started to get serious when Sean admitted his strong feelings for Brooke, but... To his surprise, Brooke didn't feel the same. For her, this affair was just a fling, and she didn't want to commit to a relationship with Sean. When she realized that Sean was taking their affair too seriously, she decided to end it, but Sean didn't want to accept it. So Brooke called Sean's wife, Michelle, in January of 2011 and told her about the affair. To prove that she was telling the truth, she told Michelle what color underwear Sean was wearing that day. She described family pictures that were in the walls of their home, and she even described a scar that Sean had near his genitals. When Michelle confronted Sean about this, he denied the affair completely, and he had a good excuse for every bit of proof that Brooke had given Michelle. How did Brooke know what color underwear he was wearing that day? Well, she must have seen them at work as he was coming out of the bathroom. How did she know about their family pictures on the wall? Well, one day, Brooke had been at their house while he swapped cars. And that scar near his genitals? Well, she knew about that because they were such good friends. Thankfully, Michelle didn't buy it, and she told him that she wanted a divorce. The couple separated the very next day. So now, Sean didn't have Brooke or Michelle. He was angry at Brooke for exposing him to his wife, and this situation seemed to send him on a downward spiral. Sean started sending Brooke messages all day and night, and when she told him that they were done, he just sent even more messages. It got to a point that Brooke was scared of him, and she told her friends that. 
A few weeks after Brooke exposed Sean to his wife, one of Brooke's neighbors told police that she heard blood-curdling screams coming from her house. Sean had broken into Brooke's house, hidden her shower, and waited for her to get home. When she got home, he attacked her. Brooke ended up breaking a window in order to escape him, and Sean left the scene. Brooke's landlady ordered Sean to replace the window, and she told police that Brooke had confided in her that Sean had beat her head against the floor that day and tried to rape her. Sean ended up writing an apology letter to the landlady and her husband, which said, My apologies. Women tend to make us do crazy things. Unfortunately, that night was one of them. Thank you for allowing me to make amends on this. It was that incident that caused Brooke to file for an order of protection against Sean. When she filed it, she told police that this was not the first time that he had been violent with her. She recalled a time when Sean had shook her and choked her inside of his truck and then threw his phone at the windshield so hard that it actually cracked the windshield. In the restraining order, Brooke said that Sean was out of control and violent and described a time when Sean told her that he had been looking into getting her killed and that he would plead temporary insanity and claim that she had broken up his marriage. He confidently told her that he would only get five or six years in prison. The order of protection was granted, but Sean continued to stalk Brooke, following her nearly everywhere she went. He would leave notes and flowers on her car after she had made it clear that they were done, but apparently Sean thought that he was above the law. Even one of Brooke's friends had witnessed Sean's disturbing behavior. Caitlin Ockel later testified that the first time she had met Sean, she had went to dinner with him, but that Sean had a few too many drinks, so she offered to drive Brooke back to her car, which was parked at the insurance office. Caitlin said, He was pretty furious that she didn't ride back with him. I remember it was pouring down rain, and as soon as we pulled into the parking lot, his truck was right there behind us. She said that as Brooke got out of her car, Sean approached her and grabbed her by the arm, but Brooke got away from him and got back into the car with Caitlin. She testified that Brooke was obviously frightened, so much so that she wasn't even comfortable getting into her car and just left it there. Another friend of Brooke's, James Cordell, would later testify that although he had never witnessed any abuse, he had seen bruises on Brooke's neck one time. Then, on October 15, 2011, a couple was driving in their car when they spotted a dead body on the side of the road. It was Brooke. She was fully clothed, but she had been shot three times, with the last shot being execution-style in the back of her head. An autopsy would later show that Brooke was still alive after the first two shots, drowning in her blood and likely aware that she was about to be killed. She was just 23 years old. When police discovered the order of protection, they immediately wanted to talk to Sean, but they couldn't get him to answer his phone. So instead, they went by his townhouse and watched his house for about an hour before finally knocking on the door. Sean answered and agreed to talk to them. When they asked Sean if he knew Brooke, he says that she was a former employee of his and that they had dated but broken up and remained friends. He asked them what was going on and they told him that they were simply conducting a welfare check on Brooke and wanted to know when he last saw her. Sean originally told police that he hadn't seen or heard from Brooke that day, but police didn't buy it. 
They pressed him some more, and he then admitted that he had seen her that day and that after they went out to eat, he dropped her off at her car around 6.30 or 7 and went home. So the police left Sean's house and started putting together their timeline. The day before, on October 14th, Brooke had parked her car in the parking lot of a restaurant in Knoxville while she stayed the night with a friend following a football game. The next day, they find that she was in touch with Sean all day long, having six phone conversations and exchanging 43 text messages. She eventually decided to meet up with Sean one last time to try to convince him to leave her alone, and the two went out for dinner. A bartender told police that she had seen Sean and Brooke together the day that she was killed. Brooke was a frequent customer there, and the bartender knew her. She also noted that Brooke wasn't very talkative that night, and that she could feel the tension between them, saying, You can feel tension, and there was tension, but there wasn't anything said. It just seemed like they were quiet. Brooke and Sean are seen on video footage leaving together around 6.30 p.m., but Brooke was walking noticeably ahead of Sean, indicating to police that something was wrong. When they confronted Sean with this evidence, he confessed that he had seen her that day and met up with her, but that he had dropped her off at the shopping center. Again, the police didn't buy it. They later found text messages between them where Sean wrote, Don't F this up. Please don't F this up. They were sent at 5.45 p.m. and 6.31 p.m., right around the time they were leaving the restaurant, and those were the last messages sent between them. They issued a search warrant for Sean's house and found that he owned a gun that used the same type of bullet found near Brooke's body. So on June 18, 2012, Sean was indicted on first-degree murder and was supposed to turn himself in the following Monday morning for his arraignment, but he doesn't show up. A warrant was immediately issued for his arrest, and Sean was added to the Roan County's most wanted list. The judge stated that if he was caught, he was to be held without bail and a multi-state manhunt was launched. Two days later, he was found by Pearl River County Sheriff David Allison in Mississippi with a loaded 12-gauge shotgun in the front seat of his Toyota Tundra after a tip came through to local police. He also had sleeping bags, clothing, and personal items in the truck, and police stated that it was apparent that he was on the run. In fact, after he was arrested, he refused to waive his right to extradition, which meant that it would take weeks to get him back to Tennessee. Sean would later admit that he was following the media reports about the manhunt that was underway to find him. While Brooks' family were overcome with grief, a second half of their nightmare was just beginning. Sean's family was able to post his bail after he was arrested, so while they waited for trial to begin, Sean was a free man. He then seemingly tried to delay his trial many times by swapping his legal representation. At one point, while out on bail, he was even arrested for drinking and driving, where he then threatened to commit suicide and was sent to a mental hospital before going back to jail. All of the delays with the trial were causing Brooke's family a great deal of stress. Her mother, Tina, told reporters, It angers me. I am not going to stop fighting until she gets her justice. She stated that every time they would get close to starting trial, that Sean would fire his lawyer so that they'd have to start all over again. In all, they encountered 22 delays in the trial that cost them five years. 
After those five years of delays, Sean's trial finally began in the summer of 2016 with Sean being on his fifth attorney. The prosecution's claim was simple. Sean was an angry man who shot Brooke and dumped her body on the side of the road because he was jealous and possessive. He was mad that she had not only outed their affair, but also rejected him. Some of his friends claimed that he even blamed Brooke for the dissolution of his marriage. One of the most damning pieces of testimony from his trial came from a woman named Amy, who used to work for Sean at the insurance office. She testified that the day after Brooke's murder, Sean came into the office shaking and sweating. At this point, she had already heard that Brooke had been killed and that he was a suspect, so she asked him, were you directly or indirectly involved? And he said both. If you're enjoying this podcast and want to hear more full-length episodes, mini episodes, and more, then check out the Murder Podcast Patreon fan club. Not only will you be getting bonus content, but a portion of the proceeds will be donated to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Check it out at patreon.com slash themurderpodcast, and I'll also link it in the show notes. Apparently after the split from his wife, but before Brooke's murder, Sean started living with a friend. His former roommate later testified that Sean's pistol had been on the table in their apartment the morning that Brooke was murdered, even though Sean had told him the day before that he had lost it. At trial, Sean didn't take the stand. His defense was simple. There wasn't any physical evidence connecting him to the crime scene, but apparently there didn't need to be any. It took just four hours for the jury to find Sean guilty of first-degree murder, and in August of 2016, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In October of 2018, Sean's lawyers filed for an appeal and made the following claims. They stated that some of the evidence was obtained illegally, that they had failed to allow expert ballistics and firearms testimony, that they shouldn't have allowed evidence related to the order of protection. They shouldn't have allowed Brooks' landlord to provide a hearsay testimony and many other things stating that they should have declared a mistrial. Although Brooks' mom, Tina, was satisfied with the verdict and sentence, she told reporters that she still struggled to find peace, saying, there will never be closure. What's closure? There will never be closure for me. Brooke will never be back. She's never there at Christmas. She's never there for Mother's Day. Following his conviction, Tina then sued Sean for her daughter's wrongful death. Although Sean insisted that he was innocent, he also refused to testify during the civil suit, asserting his Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate himself. After hearing all of the testimony, the judge ruled against him, ordering that he pay $2 million in compensatory damages to Tina and Brooke's son. But with Sean spending the rest of his life in jail, it's unlikely that Tina will ever collect much of that settlement. But Tina said that it was never about the money. It was about standing up for Brooke and using every tool possible under the law to make sure he's denied any pleasure of life. The civil judgment will stay on his record for 10 years, wherein Tina will have to file a motion to renew it, which she says as long as she's breathing, she will, 
stating that he will go to his grave with that judgment around his neck. Tina told reporters, I hope it shows younger girls, if you are mistreated in any way, you need to get out and stay out. It's a huge problem. Domestic violence is a huge problem. It doesn't help Tina's grief to know that Sean is in a minimum security prison where he trains therapy dogs. She said, It's like a camp for him, and that enrages me. I'm going to do everything in my power to get that changed. In the meantime, Tina has connected with other families in the area who have also suffered tragedies, and she's an advocate for victims' rights. Tina said that Brooke's son looks just like her, even in some of the things he does. It's just like Brooke. She says that it's like Brooke has never left her, like she's right there with her. And Sean's ex-wife, Michelle, also reached out to news channel WATE after the trial to let them know that although Sean was considered to be the legal father of her child during their divorce, that since she did have a sperm donor, she had that changed and Sean is no longer the legal father. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, please contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or online at thehotline.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. You can find all of the show notes and more information about this podcast at themurderpodcast.com. That's the murder, M-H-E-R-D-E-R, podcast.com.